State Farm Insurance knows that understanding and investing in our cultural identity is paramount in protecting our future. We know what it's like to go from nothing to something to wish that we had better financial literacy when we were younger. Luckily, State Farm is here to help with funding programs like Project Ready, which is committed to education achievement and has already awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to black and brown youth since 2021. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. AT&T connects an ode to podcast. Connect the alarm, change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze, 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Hot Happy Mess. Celebrate your magic in the middle of life's messes. Hot Happy Mess. I'm Zuri Hall, and this is Hot Happy Mess. Oh, shoot. (laughs) What's going on, y'all? Happy Wednesday. If you're listening to this on the day that it is published, we drop new episodes every Wednesday of Hot Happy Mess. I'm your host, Zuri Hall. Um, Today's episode is one that I'm, I'm really looking forward to. It's a conversation that I'm looking forward to having. Um, You're used to me giving the host reads after. I've already had the conversations, but I haven't had this convo yet. She is here with me right now, and I'm really excited about that uh, because I'm very curious to see where this combo will go and also to learn more about the work of a death doula. If you've read the title, then you you know what you're getting into today. Um, you know, obviously, we talk a lot about how to live our best lives on the podcast and, and just in general, we talk a lot about life, but death is so much a part of life and it's something that we all experience and encounter when, whether it's loved ones, whether it's strangers, co-workers, eventually ourselves. Uh, today, I'm sitting down to talk with a death doula, Elua Arthur. Uh, she is going to talk about how to make that transition both physically and logistically, the healing that comes um, or that can come with certain work after someone passes. And she's going to help us answer the question, what must I do to be at peace with myself so that I may live presently and die gracefully. Wow. I hope this episode is illuminating. I hope it brings you peace 
And here to help us with that journey is Alua Arthur. Alua, how are you? I'm I'm good today. I'm joyful. I'm hopeful today. Thank you for asking. Are you good today? Okay. Because yeah, I sense yeah. the hesitation, the pause. Has it been a bit of a trying time for you? Not to get all into your business, but you know. No problem. I think it is for many of us, you know, being human lately comes with an extra set of responsibilities and pressure that I think many of us adults didn't anticipate. But I really just took a pause to check in before I answered on autopilot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I good. appreciate How are you, you doing that. Same, same. I've just in the last year started to actually take a beat and not lie. So, okay, what can I say that is true, even if it may be slightly more depressing than whatever the other person was expecting to hear? But that's not my problem. You asked me and I'm going to tell you. Um, Before we get into our conversation, I do just want to kind of let everyone know who you are because the resume, I mean, um, let me drop y'all with the bio really quickly, Alleluia. Uh, She is a death doula, as I mentioned. She's a recovering attorney. Are those your words, Alleluia? Yeah, those are adequate. Okay, recovering attorney and the founder of Going With Grace, which is a death doula training and end-of-life planning organization that exists to support people as they answer the question, what must I do to be at peace with myself so that I may live presently and die gracefully? Going With Grace works to improve and redefine the end-of-life experience for people rooted in every community using the individual lived experience as the foundation. She is inspired by the gift of life itself and is always on the quest for the best donuts and fried plantains. Have you Amen. found them? Where do I get Everywhere. them? Everywhere. Everywhere. The best plantains, fried plantains come from Ghana. The best donuts are in LA. Randy's Donuts by the airport, by oh, LAX. There's a okay. Nutella well, just... hazelnut donut that just makes me go Wait, wild. What? Hazelnut? Oh, yeah. What? Nutella donut. Oh, my It's goodness. fantastic. Look at God, because I'm headed to the airport on Friday, and now I have a stop along the way. Thank you Get for you that. some. Get you some. <laughs> well, welcome to Hot Happy Mess. Like I said, I'm so glad to have you on. Let's just dive right in with who you are, um, how you got into this work. What do you hope people understand about you before we even get into the nitty gritty? Oh, that's a big question. Uh, Let's see. I'm a daughter. I'm a lover. I'm a sister. I'm a friend. I'm somebody who cares deeply about the human experience, about what we're doing while we're here, how we're enjoying our time here, because it is really just a brief amount of time that we're human. Uh, I think I'm also somebody who is really comfortable in emotional depth, which allows me to be with people at a really difficult and trying time. Uh, I'm somebody who thinks big picture about a lot of things. I think creatively about how we can approach life. I think logistically about how we can prepare for the end of it. Uh, And I think, I believe, I think soulfully about what we're doing here while we're here. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. When it comes to the work that you do, um, particularly when you say thinking logistically about the end of life, your capacity for emotional depth in a way that probably is higher than a lot of other people's bandwidths, considering that you aren't just offering your heart and services to the people closest to you. This is your livelihood at this point. I can't imagine what that feels like emotionally for you to take on every day. What made you decide to take that on? It is a big one to take on, understandably. Uh, Let's see. So I'm a recovering attorney. I worked at Legal Aid for the first 10 years of my professional work, doing domestic violence work mostly, and working with people on cash aid, welfare, and food stamps, et cetera. And I got burnt out doing that work. 
and grew a really deep clinical depression. And I went on leave of absence from my work because life was not life and it was not happening for me. I was having a really hard time. Took a leave of absence. And during that leave of absence, I met a young traveler when I was in Cuba who had uterine cancer. And this woman was on the top, on the trip to see the top six places in the world she wanted to see before she died. And that really struck me that somebody who was just a few years older than I was thinking logistically about the end of her life. Like, if this is it, what else do I want to do? And so I talked to her a lot about life. I talked to her a lot about her death. I asked her what would be undone in her life if this disease killed her. I was just really curious about her experience. And it was one of the first times that she had an opportunity to talk about her death because when she'd talk about it with her friends or her loved ones, they would say, oh, don't worry about that. You're going to get better. You know, keep hoping you're going to be cured. And she was like, yo, I might not be like, please, somebody be with me in this. And so I was right. in it with her. And in that conversation, I began to think about my own death, too. She was only a few years older than me. I was like, yo, people die. Like young people die up until that How point. How old were you at my, this time? I was 33. Okay, I was okay. 33. So I wasn't that young, but I was young enough. At that young, point, the girl, only- Young, girl, hold on. Young. I'm young. 34. Don't make me feel <laughs> like it's over. <laughs> not remotely, not remotely. But young enough to- My grandparents died before I was born. You know, nobody significant in my life had died up until that point. Michael Jackson was maybe like the biggest death for me up until that point. I was heartbroken. Uh, so I hadn't really been with death personally. Nobody close to me had died. And then I got really clear that I wanted to support people in this conversation because it seemed really rich and it seemed to help her. And I was looking for some purpose in my life anyway. And not long after I came back from Cuba, my brother-in-law, my older sister's husband, got sick. He got diagnosed with Burkitt's lymphoma. And four months later, there wasn't going to be anything they could do for him anymore. So I packed up my stuff from L.A. I went to New York. I stayed with them for the last two months of his life. And I saw firsthand, I had the experience of somebody in the process, in the medical care system, with somebody who's really sick and dying. And when I saw it happening in real time, I thought, this ain't it. Like, this ain't wow. it. This is something that we all must do at some point. Now, why does it feel so isolating? Why does it feel so scary? Why does it feel like there's no support for this thing that I know is happening to thousands of other people today, but will eventually happen to all of us? It seemed to me really cruel that we don't take care of each other in that way. Uh, I thought we needed more support. And so I set out to create it. And that's how Going With Race was born. Mm, what a fascinating evolution. And I also love that it really just came together so organically on this trip to Cuba, where it was probably the last thing you would have expected to come back from Cuba with this thing on your heart. Um, when we think of doulas, you know, traditionally, okay, it's there's a baby on the way. We're giving birth, new life. When I heard death doula, I thought, wait, what? like just reverse that, flip it, turn, turn it on his head. <laughs> And it was such a fascinating term, but it is, to be quite honest, something I had never heard of, didn't know it was a thing. Can you explain for those who may not even know what a, you know, a birth doula is, what a doula is in general first, and then obviously what makes a death doula unique? Absolutely. So a doula is somebody who serves in a supportive role during a transition in life. A death doula is somebody who does all of the non-medical care and support of the dying person and the family, the circle of support through the process. So we can help with emotional things, logistical things, practical things, spiritual things. We're there to really see them through the best that we can. For example, when I was with my brother-in-law and my sister, 
there were so many things that needed doing. Like his parents were flying in from out of town and they need medication and she needed new pajamas and we need to buy greeting cards at the hospital and we need to pick stuff up so that my sister could be at the hospital with him and spend as much time with him mm. as possible. I went to go and do those things. You understand? Mm. Such that yeah. it freed up the time so that the circle of support can be with their person. So they can spend that last amount of time being there, not researching what needs to go in a will or what you're supposed to do with all the medications when somebody dies. There's somebody there who can handle it for you so that you can be present for this utterly transformative experience you're about to be a part of. Mm. That, that's really interesting to understand because, you know, it's one thing for the emotional support or the spiritual support. And that's kind of just where my mind went completely assuming, not knowing yet and looking forward to our conversation so I could truly understand. But to hear logistically speaking that you're really, you're helping to give people more time, more time with their loved one, more time to process and grieve or maybe just be and sit with. Because I've experienced that, you know, I, I lost my grandfather who was like a, a second dad to me. We were extremely close. I held his hand when he passed. I, I held mm -hmm. vigil at the bed for days and days and days leading up to it. And it was one of the most overwhelming emotional experiences of my young life. I was 23, maybe. I, or I wow. just turned 24 a week before he died. No, two days before he died. And um, and that was overwhelming. And I remember the coming and going in a very murky way of people having to realizing suddenly that this was probably the end. And then suddenly having to get on with the business of living and dying. And so people who would much rather have been in the room had to go out into the world and handle things right. when we just wanted to be next to my papa during his transition. So it, it's really comforting and empowering to hear you say that a part of what a death doula can do is support all that other stuff so that you can focus on whatever you decide really matters. Absolutely. And sometimes what really matters is also the emotional support. Sometimes what matters more is the spiritual support. Is the, what the hell? Like, has this been my whole life and now I'm about to find out whether or not there is a hell? Like, what happens next? How do I feel about that? What am I afraid of? Uh, what has my life meant so far? Sometimes there are emotional challenges with family members, their family dynamics at play, which is often the case. We can support in all of the, all the needs that people have nearing the dying time. And it's up to the dying person and the circle of support to help identify what those issues are so that we can step in when we see fit. I want to also acknowledge what you did for your grandfather. That's huge. You've already served mm -hmm. as a doula. That's wow. incredible. Yeah. Most of us will do it at some point in our lives. We'll be with somebody that we love as they die. And as you, I think as you said, but certainly what I felt is it's not an easy task. It's a really, really difficult one. So I want to acknowledge you for walking with him. Thank you. Don't make me cry. No. But yeah, I, I, I feel good about it. You know, when I think about that and death is something we avoid, we don't want to talk about. Even I was a little nervous, like, Ooh, a death, a conversation about death doulas on the podcast. Like that's so heavy. That's so real. But the truth is we all go through it. And even now talking with you, I feel it immediately. Like it was yesterday and as painful as it was, as hard as it was, it was also one of the most beautiful things I've ever been able to do. I'm so grateful to have been able to hold his hand and provide comfort along with our other loved ones as he transitioned. Um, and sometimes things are hard and we should do them anyway, or we want to do them anyway. And it's amazing and, and incredible the work that you do to help facilitate that. From a, from a spiritual perspective, how does that work for you personally? Does it 
is it suggested that a client hire a death doula whose spiritual beliefs overlap with their own? Are you able to cater your um, showing up <laughs> in the spiritual way to whatever that person or their families believe in? How, how, what should we consider when it comes to that? It's most important that we find somebody that we feel comfortable with. Doulas mm. are largely secular in nature. I mean, sometimes it's suggested that doulas uh, who have a strong spiritual leaning themselves and don't feel comfortable supporting people of other faith traditions stay within their own. But I work with everybody. I work with everybody who's comfortable working with me because my job is not to fill the space with my beliefs. It's to support the person who's dying to get clear on theirs. And so if it's, you know, Allah and 27 virgins, good on you. If it's fire and brimstone, hopefully not. If it's on the right-hand side of the Father, fantastic. If it's Judaism and you don't know what's coming next, fantastic. No matter what it is, I'm here just to help the person get clear on what it is that they believe. Most people, even the most religious amongst us, sit with some type of question. None of us know, right? Nobody knows. We have a set of beliefs, a faith of some sort. But a belief remains basically a belief until it's tested. Then it becomes evidence and there's some evidence for it. But up until then, it's just a belief. And so people that are dying are sitting right on the threshold, right on the precipice of finding out. And it's a big, scary time. I think yeah. probably one of the reasons why many people don't want to think about death is because it's too big and uncomfortable for us. Yeah. And those that are close are confronted with that directly. Were you ever that person? Were you someone who was always okay with the idea no. of death? Not remotely. I didn't think about it. I didn't think about yeah. it. I grew up uh, evangelical Christian, and so I was told a lot of things. But to be honest with you, not many of them jived with me very early. I was like, wait a minute, what? So I'm going to go to hell because I, nah. Like, I think this God <laughs> loves me. This God that's who made no all this me. beauty, that's a no. All this beauty, mm -hmm. hummingbirds and like beavers, like all that, how? It gets impossible. So mm -hmm. it didn't jive, which meant that very early on, I had to come up with my own system, which keeps getting refined the longer I do this work. But I still have some fears of death. You know, I think it's a misnomer that those of us that work in death and dying have none whatsoever. I think we're just probably a little bit more comfortable with the fear than are many who just push it away. And so I welcome opportunities to look at where my fear of death might live because that fear of death is likely getting in the way of the way that I actually live. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Yeah, it makes total sense to me. Okay. Absolutely. And, and and I think that also allows for more compassion for your clients, for the people that you're working with, right? It's it's one thing when someone comes in and is like, I'm not afraid. This is great. Let's do it. And like, sure, there's comfort in that. And I don't mean specific to death, Julius. I mean in anything, right? When someone's coming in to help get you to the other side of a thing. But then, you know, I've had moments where I'm like, oh, this person just don't care, care. So like, they clearly <laughs> have no nothing to lose here. But when right. someone can come in and say, hey, I'm, I'm a little scared too, or I've been scared before, I've been where you are, and we're just going to do it anyway. I've yeah. done it anyway. Well, that yeah. to me is a little more comforting because now you can empathize with my fear yeah. instead of just blindly being like, we're doing it. It's great. It's great. Rock on. Everybody going to die. Which, I mean, right. I certainly do. It, which is the truth, right? And I can it be kind of cavalier about it. Same. I can be really yeah. irreverent about it sometimes. But at the yeah. same time, there's so much compassion in it because this is big mm -hmm. stuff. And also, right. aside from it just being deeply emotional, it's also philosophical. It's existential. Like, who have I been while I'm living? It touches our relationships, our self-worth, our accomplishments, our family, our legacy. Like, every part of ourselves gets called into question when we're thinking about our death. Naturally, mm -hmm. that brings something up. 
beyond that, also the way that the brain works is it's the brain's job to experience consciousness, you know, to be here, to look through these set of eyes, to know my experience. So, so to try to imagine the absence of that experience is really hard to do. Like how? Right. The, the brain can't do that. The brain can't do that. Of course, it's a little scary. I get it. And that's yeah. okay. It's expected. It's expected. Yeah. We're human. You've said, I feel most alive when talking about death. Why is that for you? And why do you think most of us don't want to go there? Why are we all so afraid of it? I feel most alive when talking about death because my life does not matter unless I die. Mm. Yeah. Think about it this way. On mm. your 7,876th birthday, are you still going to be happy they sing that song to you? No. You have <laughs> unlimited ones coming. It doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. Why are we even going to count the birthdays? You know? Right. Because I'm going to die, who I choose to be when I'm living matters. Otherwise, I have an unlimited amount of time to change my mind or do something different. Because I die, I want to get my work done. I have stuff that I want to do. Like, death creates some context for this life. Without it, none of this matters at all. And so when I think about my death, I get jazzed. I get excited. I get juicy about my life over and over and over again. Yeah, like who do I want to be? What do I want to say? Who do I what do I want to do? Like, do I want to tell this man I'm in love with that? I love him. Am I gonna keep that a secret? No, I'm gonna tell him. Mm. I'm gonna tell him. Mm. Yeah, I'm mm. gonna tell him. I'm gonna eat the what cake. What an interesting lens. It, you're so right. It, it as you say it, I'm like, duh, like why shouldn't I be thinking about it that way? But we just I think a lot of us don't even take that second step. We hear death, we think end, and we just pivot, we just move, we just shut down, we compartmentalize. We short circuit. We're like, well, mm. no, no, thank you. No, thank you. And <laughs> realistically, it's like 18th step. You know what I mean? Because we can think like in five minutes, five years, you know, 50 years down the road, which for some 50 years might mean our death. But to think my death itself, me no longer being present, that's a big one to take in. But nothing, yeah. nothing matters. My life doesn't matter. Nothing I do matters unless I'm going to die. Right. Wow. Your website is goingwithgrace.com. What does it mean to go with grace? Oh, it means in surrender. I think it means the best way that we can. I think it means in full embrace of what this life has been thus far. For whatever it's been thus far. For who we've become. Mm-hmm. And for the mark that we've left, no matter how big or small or how we choose to judge it. Mm. How can we begin the process of preparing ourselves to go with grace when the time comes? How can we live a life that helps us more gracefully say goodbye to it one day? We can start by no longer denying our death. We can start by no longer denying the fact that one day I, as I know myself, is going to cease to exist. It's a tough one. It is a big burden. But when we can do that, we can start to create some ease around it. There's a number of logistical things to do if you're not ready to look in the mirror and be like, I'm going to die. But there's a number of other logistical things to do to get ourselves ready. Um, Mm -hmm. We can also, we can make decisions from an authentic place. A place that says, you know, if I were to die tomorrow, would I be happy I did this thing? We can move through the world as though we deserve to be here because we do. 
when we're done, we'll be done. But for now, I am here. I'm here. I'm going to be mm. as big as I want. I'm going to be as loud as I want. Mm. I'm going to be as bold as I want. I'm going to be as sweaty as I want. I'm going to be as much cellular as I want. I'm here yes. very, very, very briefly. And so I'm going to do it all up while I'm here. Amen. Yeah. Mm. You just get to be here. Actually here. Mm-hmm. Not three minutes in the future or seven days in the past. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something we care deeply about here at Black Tech Green Money. State Farm Insurance also cares about the growth of black communities. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help provide financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. We want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. It also requires active sponsorship of programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, along with funding programs like Project Ready, a national urban league program committed to educational achievement of black and brown youth that has awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to date. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful DC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! (laughs) And outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. When it comes to to being here and sort of being a sovereign being and being able to take that on for oneself, that's one conversation. When it when we're bringing in loved ones, spouses, children, and how they do or don't want to touch the idea of death, it becomes harder. Helping people cope with the eventual loss of us, us cup coping with the eventual loss of them. You know, I had a conversation with a, with a very close loved one recently, and it was a lighthearted conversation, but I meant it in all seriousness when I asked, you know, 
at the end of your life, God forbid, slash it's definitely going to happen, but hopefully <laughs> a long time from now, like what would you want to do when I think I brought up like a medical situation, you know, Great. pulling the cord or not. If you've been comatose for eons and the doctors are like, you might want to call it. Should I do that? Do you want me to just sing you lullabies and watch you waste away for the next 30 years? Whatever you want is what I'm trying to do. But what do you want me to do? And that loved one really pushed back on the idea of dying, let alone, oh, well, if I'm comatose, I'll just come in from the other side and I'll pop up to tell you to pull the plug or not. And like, they're joking, obviously, but it also made me realize people don't want to talk about this. And I hope I'm never in a position where I have to make that decision now. And I don't know what to do because in waking life, someone wasn't ready to go there. Um, How do we broach those conversations with our loved ones? And how do we encourage them lovingly to get serious about having those hard conversations? Thank you so much for bringing that up because it's a real issue that many of us deal with. And many Mm. people don't want to have that conversation. So what you experience is not unusual at all. One thing that we can do is to be a gentle reminder and invitation into the conversation. What I mean by that is if you try to broach it and somebody is pushing back, you can try to make it um, more real, more feet on the ground. Like when you were last sick or, you know, when you were gone on vacation for a week, who took care of your dog? And would you like this person to take care of your dog if you're no longer here? Like we can make it very tangible and personal and real. Um, if that's still not working, another thing that you can try is to talk about yourself and what you might want to be the invitation to say, well, I would really like to stay on life support for no more than, you know, three days so that the people around me or the people that love me can fly to come and see me and say goodbye when I'm with my body, but I think I'll be gone. So you can start the conversation by telling them what it is that you like, which is probably going to get their thoughts stirring. Um, but there's a few key components that we should be talking about. And one of them is certainly life support, what we want done with our bodies when we can't make the decisions for ourselves, and also who we would like to make those decisions for us. So like with this loved one you were just talking to, uh, maybe you can ask if you're the person that they would like to make that decision for them, you know? Mm -hmm. And if not, if there's somebody else, and have you told that other person? And what did you tell that other person? And, you know, we can start having those conversations as well. So I think some of us take for... Yeah, we take for granted uh, that we might be the one that's doing the thing for somebody or that there's going to be somebody else doing it. But it's important that we have these discussions beforehand, particularly for, I mean, everybody, but Black folks, big time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm like, help me out. Give me the roadmap. Give me the bullet points because I'm already going to (laughs) be... At a hundred emotionally, like to, to the, even thinking clearly and logically can be so difficult to do in those moments. Also making sure you're getting it right for the person you love. Like it's such a burden we sometimes put on ourselves in a situation where they're no longer um, alert enough to express that. It just breaks my heart that I might be making the wrong choice. Right. Um, so that's something that I've thought about a lot. So I appreciate that answer. And I, I think that that's a really a great perspective to make it real, to make it tangible. And then also to maybe flip it and and be able to express what I would want, because I cringe a little bit thinking about that. You know, I'm asking this person, but have I really sat with what, I, what my wishes would be? Not really, because I don't want to. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that's a great way to, to hold myself accountable too. Um, 
when we think about children and parents, you know, in, in the the conversations around life and death, um, it's even more nuanced. You know, you have these these little minds and hearts that are still being formed and evolving, and they're so innocent, and yet sometimes have to deal with the scariest, biggest, most painful things so early in life. How do you suggest we navigate conversations around death with children? Um, maybe what experiences, anything that you could share um, around children and death and how to make that process, um, if not less painful, then more comforting for them? That's a great question, too. Uh, and let me start by saying this, that kids know so much more than we think that they know. And we try to protect them. But by trying to protect them, by not telling them truth about what's going on, we're actually making it harder for them. And we're instilling them with an early fear of death. We're instilling them mm. with death phobia by saying, oh, grandma's just sleeping. That kid is now probably scared to go to sleep. I know for sure there was a client who came through whose seven-year-old son was terrified to sleep because his dad had told him that grandma went to sleep. And she never came back after she went to sleep. So he won't sleep anymore. We got to tell him the truth. We got to tell him the truth. We have to do it age appropriately and also make sure that we're um, talking from like a trusted source, like somebody that they trust is talking to them about death and dying. But we have to tell them the truth. Um, and if the truth is I don't know, that's okay. You know, my my niece was four when my brother-in-law was dying and I was with her the entire time because my sister was in the hospital. And she would ask me all these questions that, of course, I didn't know the answer to. And I wanted to tell her the fantastical things that I'd been told. But that didn't serve me because I had to unlearn it all as an adult. And so when she was asking, well, is he going to go back to the place that he came from? I said, well, baby girl, that is a great question. I don't know the answer. What would you like? Mm. And she said, I hope so, because he was safe mm. there. And it broke my heart, but it also was just like, it was so touching. Like she knew what was up. You know what I mean? She had a, she had a framework. She had a context for it already that worked for her. And so let's support that. Let's nurture that in them rather than giving them our fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kids yeah. ask questions all the time. Like, you know, are you going to die one day when death is occurring around them? They get scared. And the answer is yes, but I'm not going to be like, baby girl, I might die tomorrow. No, that's not how to do it. <laughs> what I say often is. One day I will, one day I will, but I hope it's not for a really, really long time, okay? And then they'll right. say, okay, okay. 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 <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh. Oh, I just think of the parents. I'm like, I'm not, I'm, I'm a dog mom. That's about it. I just, Listen. goodness, those, those are big conversations. But you're right. Kids are so smart. And yeah. if we are too afraid to have those conversations with them, they're going to figure it out. Some, they're going to figure something out somewhere. Yes. They're going to yeah. go somewhere for answers or conversation or to try to understand. So I'd rather it be me. <laughs> in, exactly. In transparency. Yeah. Let's else. parent them in their death mm -hmm. as well, you know, and not give yeah. them the nonsense that we were giving that hasn't served us. That has right. instead made death more difficult, made grief untouchable. Like let's yeah. grieve openly in front of them. Let's tell them the truth. Let's give them an opportunity to share what they think about. They know death. They understand that batteries die. Video game mm -hmm. characters die. Cartoon characters die. Like they, they, they have yeah. some context for it. They know how to grieve. They get sad when you take things away from them. They get it. Yeah. They get mm -hmm. it. Let's hold them there. Let's hold them there. What are some of the misconceptions that you've seen in your work around end-of-life planning that people <laughs> tend to have or what death looks like as people transition? 
show where do we begin? Let's start with Hollywood because you oh, know there's yeah, this image. Do. Yeah, yeah. My favorite you know people plays. Die. Your favorite. <laughs> you know how people die in the movies and they're all beautiful and the hair mm-hmm. is done and makeup's done, cheeks are rosy, laying in the bed, everybody's nice and calm and comfortable. They say something really meaningful and then they flatline Super and it's over. And right? Done. <laughs> Don't look anything like that for starters. Mm. At all. Mm -hmm. And so I think that has led a lot of people to think that they have time when people are right at the end of life to fix whatever it is that might be happening. That is not the truth. Say it now. Mm. First of all, we don't know when that end might come. But nearing the end of life, people are unconscious. They don't have much energy left. Communication is difficult. Breathing is difficult. It's hard to talk, let alone to dig into deep emotional wounding and scarring (laughs) and trauma. Please handle it now. Okay, just handle it now. Handle it now. Yeah. One of the major misconceptions, what happens to bodies after they die? We think of rigor mortis setting in immediately or, you know, dead dead bodies look kind of like living ones. People look similar, but it's clear that some quality of them is gone. And when people are able to spend some time around dead bodies, I believe that it can support the grieving process because they can see that. The person that they loved is no longer here like that anymore. That person has moved on. And what's left is this this body, the sack of flesh and tissue and so on Mm. and so forth. Another Mm. misconception people have often is about end-of-life planning and getting a will or a trust. And don't get me wrong, I think it's very important that people think about what's going to happen to their money when they die. But far more important is making the decisions about your health care having the conversations that you need to with your loved ones, there is a legal system in place to handle your stuff. Again, it is important. It is important. But thinking about what's going to happen when I die, think about your service. Think about who you want there. Think about people that you might not want there. Think about what you want at your bedside, what kind of dying you want to experience. My job is to support people in creating the most ideal death for themselves under the circumstances. We're all going to do it. May as well plan it, do it in the way that feels best for you. Have those conversations Mm. because the way that we die ultimately teaches other people how to die. The people that are there watching, the generations that are coming after me, I want to do it in as much grace as possible. I want to show my niece that we don't have to be terrified. Right. Right. Yeah. In your experience, what does end of life planning, what does transitioning um, from life to death look like for different communities, right? Like, are there any differences in how different communities, nations, peoples deal with and process death? Oh, it's different all over the world. It's yeah. different in countries. It's different given racial lines. It's different different yeah. given ethnic lines. It's just different. People approach death in so many profoundly different ways. If you even think back to the major religions, the ways in which people access death in that way, those are so different. There's so many different ways to do it, um, which is why I suggest that people get curious about what works for them, what elements they like, what elements feel good to them, and stick with those. You know, I'd say, yeah. Are there any sort of unique... um ideas, uh, rituals, traditions around death that you've discovered or learned about in in your career or just personally through any other communities, particularly um, along like those racial and ethnic lines? Many of them, perhaps the most unique, and I say unique because it was foreign to me as I'm not of that culture, but the Tarajans in uh, Indonesia leave the dead in the home for a while. 
and then bury them and then dig them up yearly to brush their hair, change their clothes, and then oh, rebury wow. them. Right. Okay. Right. And totally normal to them. But to a lot yeah. of people in the West, we're aghast at the idea, but ain't nothing wrong with it. It's just the way that they do it. Something different. Yeah. Absolutely. Something different. Something different. Mm-hmm. No less than, mm-hmm. you know? And how, that, that do you know how long? Me. How long? Oh, I'm sorry. Continue your sentence. No, go for it. How long they keep their dead at I was home? just wondering how long they keep them in the house. You know, it's bizarre. <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to think, um, oh, if my, I was thinking of one of my older grandparents and how I'd miss them if they died. And I thought, wouldn't it be so nice if I could just essentially mummify them, embalm them <laughs> and just have them like in the house. And then I could still like visit and talk to them. And it all seemed so reasonable and yeah. like a great idea that I had nothing about it scared me. It gave me more yeah. comfort than the idea of like putting them in a casket and just never seeing them again. Uh-huh. Now with the context of like life and who I am as an adult and the fact that that's not how we get down in the States, at least I'm like, Interesting. But, you know, people do similar things, if not forever, then for for short amounts of time. And that's what I hear you saying with this Indonesian population also, this specific community. Absolutely. There's so many different ways to do it. And I love that you had that idea as a young person, because it could be, you know, people have home funerals, too, where the person dies at home. They leave the body at home for a few days until everybody feels complete. And then they send it off to the funeral home or to be buried in a green burial, no more than three and a half feet underground so that the bugs and everything can get to the body. There are a lot of different ways to do it, only bounded, first of all, by our laws, uh, by our creativity, and also sometimes Mm. by our morality, given the morality Mm. of the people that are making the laws. Yeah, because in Indonesia, ain't no problem to dig up a body in that part of Indonesia and and to redress it. But in some parts of the Western world, it would probably be looked at as desecration of human remains, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. 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 You mentioned, uh, Wills, how the yes, that can be important, but also sort of getting one's life together towards the end of it and planning for the experience that you want to have, that you want your loved ones to have is equally important. But to talk about Wills for a second, um, you know, even some of our favorite celebrities we found out or realized didn't have them, right? Chadwick Boseman. Prince, Aretha Franklin, we've seen the estates and the families battling it out and all of these things. Do you recommend that people put together even a basic will or do you think the law will sort it out, which it has? You know, I was just reading the headlines about Prince's estate the other day and how it's going to be equally split, I think like $6 million between however many um, heirs are left. Uh, But do you recommend or encourage your clients to have one or is it really to each his own? I mean, I'm dead at this I, point if it's my will, so I'm not going to see it play out. But Right, right. But I also think, man, I don't want people behind me fighting over stuff that didn't matter mad, at all. Cause mad me, at like, you on the other side. <laughs> mad, real, big mad at me for leaving them out of the will. Um, right. I suggest that people, certainly if you have children or businesses, it's really important to get a will. If you have an LLC or anything of the sort, because that's a living legal entity, kind of like the kids that need a guardian or somebody to take care of them after you die. So, and a will is the correct place to name a guardian for your children after death. So with children and businesses, very, very important. Also with assets over, let's say $250,000, also important. Anything under that, depending again on where you live, what location you live in, the court may have a process so that you don't have to have a will. It's called an intestacy process or the probate process where they'll just go through and divvy up the stuff and figure out who the next of kin is and who should inherit it. So if it's not that important to you, you don't need 
this particular watch of your grandfather's to go to your grandson, then you can leave it. Tell somebody mm-hmm. that that watch is important and who you want it to go to, though. I think mm-hmm. also really important is that we talk about the story behind the possessions. The money matters, but like, where'd you get that rock from? Why does that rock matter? To me, it's just a rock. Mm-hmm. To somebody else, it's the last thing that their mother gave them before they died. You know? Wow. Right. Yeah, let's think right. about the stuff, why the stuff has meaning. And if it's important to you, create a plan for it. That plan could be a will. Yeah. It could also be a document that says, here are the important things. Here's who I want them to go to. Um, save that document someplace where somebody knows the password so they can get to it. Because when you die, that password's going to die alongside with you. And make mm-hmm. sure that people know what it is that you want. Yeah. And that yeah. is so spot on, too. Because like in my experience, I'm thinking about like the mad dash that happens right after someone you love passes. If there's not clarity around who gets what, everyone who loves that person is so desperate for some reminder of them, so desperate for something to cling to, to touch, to feel. And it can also be really unsettling, a little bit heartbreaking, confusing when that person passes. And in life, they loved you so much. You knew it. They were always there for you. They were always thinking of you. And then if there isn't a will, and I'm speaking for myself and personal experience, it's not about what you get. You know, I personally didn't want anything of note, certainly no money, but it's just like, you want one last message from them. At least in my experience, I wanted to feel thought of by this person who has my whole heart one last time. And so I just, through that experience, realized for me and moving forward, um, wow, this will, it's not just about who gets my money once I'm gone. It's an opportunity to say something to the people I love who I've left behind. It's an opportunity to give them comfort or let them know that even in my passing and in my transitioning, I've cared for them and thought of them and want to show up for them even in a tiny way. Uh, because you're right. I'll take the rock. I'll take anything. I was, I, I was smuggling sunglasses. I was, I'm, I'm taking his polo. Back <laughs> off. Like whatever I could get to just feel feel that loved one's presence. So I I do think the will can actually be a gift in a different way, not in the superficial gimme stuff way, but in the, that meant something. They thought about me enough in their life to want me to have this after they're dead. That's such a beautiful way to put it. Uh, And you're absolutely right that some tangible piece of them remains after they die for everybody. You know, I'm going to be gone, but all my stuff is still going to be here in this temporary place I'm in. Everything that I have here is still going to be here. And people are going to look at it and it's going to remind them of me at some point. It's part of the reason why I really encourage uh, the end of life planning consultations we do, particularly at Going With Grace, to be written down by the person who's doing it. Because then when that person dies, there's still a written in their handwriting um, memorandum of what it was that they wanted, an artifact of them, handwriting still. Little things like their smell, that fades real quick after somebody dies, that lives on mm-hmm. in their clothing. You know, the things that they touched or wore very often, their shoes that have the grooves in them, their cell phone that they touched all the time, the watch mm-hmm. and jewelry that they wore every day, things like that tend to be of higher um, emotional value than the dollar bills in the bank. I mean, don't get me wrong. The dollar bills help a lot. Dollar we'll bills go all. a long way. We'll take way. it both. We'll take, we'll take the, the dollar bills. So we'll take the polo shirts and the money. We'll take the, we'll take the sunglasses that you're sneaking off. We'll take anything that you can spare. Right. Yeah, Whoever's listening to this, if I'm in your will, don't take this as permission to just cut me out of the money part. I'll take both, okay? Correct. Correct. I'm not saying. 
<laughs> yes. And anybody who's listening, go ahead and put me in your will. Okay, thank you. <laughs> just add us. Just <laughs> I'll take it. Add us to all the wills. We'll take it. We'll take it. Um, when it comes to grieving after death, you know, or even not even after, but if, if we're supporting a loved one who it's very clear there's the expiration date is near. There's a time limit. Sometimes it happens via terminal illness. Sometimes it happens via an unexpected and tragic accident. How can we show up for our loved one when it's not us? We're not planning the end of our life. How can we help them transition, hiring a death doula, potentially maybe floating the idea of a death doula to them? That's a great idea. I love that one. Yeah. That's the best one. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, good good job. Ask if there's anything <laughs> that you can do to support. And if you've heard of a death doula, you could be like, I've heard of people that do this work. Is this something that you think could yeah. support in some way? And who knows where they might be? I think the biggest thing that we can do is show up with a lot of compassion for their experience. None of us mm-hmm. knows what it's like. None of us. Even those that have been really, really, really sick before um, have any idea what it's like to know that your life is going to be ending of this particular disease in a short amount mm-hmm. of time. And so we need to come at them with a lot of compassion. Um, it's important that we stop. We don't forget that they are still living. They're not dead yet. And mm-hmm. so they probably still want to know the things that are going on in life. It's important that we take their lead with the things that they want to talk about and the things that's on their hearts. You know, we got to make space for them to talk about fear. We got to make space for them to talk about death. We also got to make space for them to talk about baseball if that's what they want to talk about. Like they don't have to talk about the fact that they're dying. They don't have to talk about their sadness or their fear or their grief or anything like that. Don't forget that they're a whole person still. They're not dead yet. And they're still they're alive. St- they are still very alive. much living. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something we care deeply about here at Black Tech Green Money. State Farm Insurance also cares about the growth of black communities. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help provide financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. We want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. It also requires active sponsorship of programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements along with funding programs like Project Ready, a national urban league program committed to educational achievement of black and brown youth that has awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to date. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Okay, 
I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. We've talked a lot about boundaries on the podcast because that just inform so much about peace and and wellness and and not giving so much of oneself that you've given too much. And what I've noticed in my experiences with death, with funerals, with family coming together, because, you know, families, we put the fun in dysfunctional sometimes. And oftentimes the only time we're all getting together is because of a cataclysmic event, whether it's a good one or a bad one, something significant has happened. And now we all are about to get together and deal with each other because of it. Um, but a lot of the niceties go out of the window, the rules change fast and hard. And the death of a loved one means everyone is individually processing their grief in a different way. And they are acting out even worse than when it's just a typical Thanksgiving and the family is on one. Mm -hmm. What have you uh, experienced, witnessed, observed about family dynamics in these difficult times? And what are some good boundaries to set? How do how do we even set boundaries in mm-hmm. a moment when everyone is just trying to make sense of, of, of the tragic? I love that you say that Thanksgiving is even more complicated than it normally is. Because, listen, these family gatherings are something special, aren't they? And you're right. After listen. death, everything is amplified. And I think, or at least I've witnessed, that we see both the best in people and the worst in people after a death. Because some people show up and show out. You know what I mean? And then some people, you're kind of surprised by their behavior when somebody (laughs) dies. Okay? Now, my biggest suggestion, and it keeps coming back to this, is compassion for their unique lived experience. We all had a different version of the person who died. We had a different experience of the person who died. You know what I mean? Like my experience with, yeah, like there are 175,000 different versions of me out there in the world and Mm -hmm. 175,000 different griefs that are going to be experienced after I die. I hope 175,000 people grieve me after I die. But you know what I mean? You out here. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Better have a parade. (laughs) They're going to be trumpets, okay? I mean, cheerleaders and backhand springs. I'm here for it. Okay. Um, But the point being that everybody's having their unique experience. And so honoring that within themselves and honoring that for myself as well, you know? Uh, And I think that sometimes that compassion doesn't mean that I got to show up and be present for whatever it is that you want to serve, but rather in order to take care of mine, I'm going to go. Yours is different Mm -hmm. than mine and I'm going to take care of mine and take care of mine. Mm -hmm. Yours is different than mine. That that's something that I come back to all the time. And it's so supportive across life, uh, across the board. Like we see the color blue differently. You know what I mean? Your right. grief is different than right. mine. This is what mine feels like. I'm going to take care of my grief for whatever it is that I mm. need at this moment. Okay. Okay. Is that helpful? Um, some, 
No, that is absolutely helpful. That okay. That is so helpful. I, I appreciate that. So thank you so much. Um, in regards to sort of how everyone deals with the aftermath of, of a death so differently, um, some of us have new traumas that we carry where, you know, we could be siblings and completely have three different versions. If I'm talking three siblings of what that death does to us, even though that person was so significant to us, uh, to all of us. And sometimes in similar ways, we have a listener question, someone who um, actually is quite traumatized based on the passing of someone they cared about. They say, I lost someone very close to me a few years ago, very unexpectedly, and we were very close in age. Ever since he passed, I've been afraid of basically every type of transportation, trains, driving next to trucks on the highways. Is there a name for this? And what would you suggest to get over it? First of all, it's totally normal. It's absolutely mm -hmm. normal. It sounds like acute grief, and it sounds like a perfectly normal response to the death of somebody that you love, particularly if the death was sudden. But even if it wasn't, many of us start fearing death in a greater way after somebody we love dies because we have uh, had a difficult experience with that death. And so whatever it is that you're experiencing, completely normal. Uh, was the second part of the question, what can be done about it? Yeah, if there's a name for it, and what would you suggest they do to try to get over it? I don't know the name for it, but I do know that it is a normal response in acute grief. If it's going on for longer than six months or so after the death, then I'd suggest perhaps seeing a mental health professional because we don't want it to get to the point where it's impacting the activities of daily living and maybe it's impacting life in such a way that we're living in fear. Um, but mm. grieving, and this is a part of grieving, is totally normal. Um, mm. One of the things to do, I think, is to look at what the the root of the fear is. So if the root if the fear is that you are also going to die, what is the root of that fear? Mm. You know, looking at your fear okay. of death because that's what it is that's showing up, right? And asking you to sit with it for a moment. Right. Is yeah. it the fear of like the process of the body? Is it the fear of not having done enough with your life? Is it the fear of leaving like some life on the table that there are things that you haven't done yet? What is that fear that you're experiencing that's having you not go on a bridge? Yeah, the fear mm. is that you're going to die. But what is the fear of that? God, Does it. that make sense? So it's not so much what you're saying. What I'm hearing you say is it's not so much the way one dies, like, sure, that's sort of the tip of the iceberg. That's what's above the surface. That's what we see. It's trucks, it's vehicles, it's whatever. I assume that this person maybe lost their loved one via some sort of vehicular accident, but it's what's underneath. It's the belly of the beast. It's why are you afraid to die, period? Like, what is that fear? And that would be deeper and, and probably much more significant than, oh, I just don't want to be in a car accident. I don't want to go off a bridge. It's what happens after when yeah, your life absolutely. Ends. I don't want to go off a bridge either. I think it'd be terrifying. Right. I'm scared of heights. And I think about my fear of heights too. And I'm like, well, what is that about? Because I think most fears mm -hmm. are fear of death, right? Mm -hmm. I'm terrified to go off the side of a bridge. I'm afraid of falling. I'm afraid yeah. of that fear of like, ah, oh, that long, like slow descent into what is my certain death. Then what is right. it that I fear from that point? Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you do a lot of work? Did you have to do a lot of work to make peace with your death before getting into your your new career, before mm. your work as a death doula? Or was it just something that you were able to casually find more comfort with the idea? Yeah, I think you sit around enough people that are dying and you can't help but think a lot about your own death. No, I didn't do much yeah. work around it at all. Like I said, the time in Cuba was the first time that I was like, wait a minute, I'm going to die. And that mm -hmm. really forced me to sit straight up and be like, wait, what does that mean? 
you know? Right. What does that mean? Right. What is this life that I've had so far? This can't be it. Mm-hmm. There has to be mm-hmm. something more. I, I, there's no way that I'm going to die depressed, having been a lawyer for 10 years, not had the time of my life, having all the sex. I didn't eat none of that <laughs> cake. Like, that can't be it. <laughs> this can't be it. There's got to we be need something all the more. Cake. All the cake. Every cake. <laughs> Every cake. <laughs> Literally, figuratively, all the cake. <laughs> we're not going out like it. this. I love it. <laughs> yeah, we're not going out like this. A lot of times the fear of death is a response to a fear of a life not fully lived. Mm. Wow. Like, I ain't got enough out of life yet, so I'm not ready to die. Then what is it that right. you're missing? What haven't you done? Go do it. Mm. Go do it. Go do it. Life will just be more rich as a result. You may not die for another 40 years, but your life today presently is going to be so much more rich because Mm -hmm. you went and did that thing that you're putting off until whatever to do. You don't know that you're going to have it forever. Just do it. Yeah. Eat the cake. Eat the cake. Eat the cake. Eat the cake. (laughs) We're all coming out on the other side of the pandemic. Uh, what broke my heart, one of the, the, the articles I couldn't stop reading that I should have stopped reading, were hearing of, you know, women giving birth alone, of people saying goodbye to loved ones from a window or a phone call because they couldn't even go to the hospital, people dying in isolation and and families just being broken because of that. How did the pandemic shift how you supported people during that time? How did it impact you, not just professionally, but personally, knowing what you have in you to do and what you have in you to give, and then maybe not even being able to do it in the way that you normally would during the pandemic? Bingo, that part, that part. When I think back to those early days, too, those articles, those images, there's like a tightness that forms in my chest. I was devastated. I mean, I probably sat on the couch for a good couple of weeks just being like, people are dying with no support. Granted, some people want to die alone. I cannot imagine that somebody had a little cough on a Wednesday, went to the hospital Mm. on Saturday and never came home. You know, Mm. like it just, it, 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 it. Hurt is not adequate. It crushed me. Yeah. It crushed me. Um, and also because, you know, so much of the work is built around supporting and empowering people to have the most ideal death for themselves under the circumstances. That's a really key component of it. And so after sitting there feeling all my feelings, feeling all my grief, feeling so much sadness and like the the weight of the pain that people were in, I got my ass up and got to work because the key component of the work is to support and empower people. I can do that from anywhere. I don't have to be present. If I can support people in creating rituals that feel authentic for them around grief, around funerals, around death, around loss, then I'm doing my job. If I can um, support people, give them some signs and symptoms of death and dying, then I'm doing my job. If I can uh, support people in finding ways to honor their dead, I'm doing my job. You know, If I can help in any way, I'm doing my job. And so I got to work real hard. I got to work. Mm-hmm. A lot of free webinars, a lot of rituals, a lot of public grieving, a lot of what can we do to hold each other during this time? Because I I mean, you just said you were feeling it. We were all feeling it. It was yeah, tough. Yeah. It was tough. You mentioned signs and symptoms of death and dying and that you were doing your job if you were able to get that across. What are some of those signs and, and symptoms? I've heard, you know, people seeing people in the room that aren't there, talking to loved ones who have already passed on. And we in the room are just like, wait, what? So what 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 are some signs or symptoms that aren't the, the obvious ones 
that would make us realize this uh, this might be the end pretty soon here? Those certainly happen, those that you just suggested, but also things that are happening in the body. Uh, let's yeah. see, a couple weeks before death, people really start to withdraw into themselves. Um, I think that it's about having less energy, but also that there's some internal work that needs to be done. People often forget that similar to the labor it takes to be birthed, when somebody's dying from disease, there's also a labor that goes into dying. And so people start to withdraw into themselves. Um, their breathing habits and patterns might change. They want to not eat as much. They don't want to drink as much. Please stop feeding folks if they're saying they don't want the food anymore. Their body's done. You're saying if they don't want to eat, don't make them eat? Yes. Really? I'm saying that. F- listen, food is one of my love languages too, okay? Feed me. <laughs> and also, really I recognize me. when somebody I love is in my house, what do you want to eat? Have you eaten anything? I learned it from my mother. What are you going to eat? You haven't eaten for a while. And we need to stop forcing our love down people's throats. The body can no mm. longer take it. It takes so much energy to digest food. You know, enzymes and like life force energy, all that stuff is going into it. The body can't produce it anymore. The the body itself is shutting down. The body is dying. And so by making them eat, we're doing them a disservice. It's so much harder for them to digest simple, simple things. If they don't want it anymore, they shouldn't have it anymore. They shouldn't have it anymore. You know, it's tough, but it's the more loving thing to do is Mm -hmm. to stop Mm -hmm. if they don't want it, if they don't want it. Right. Um, same thing right. goes Listen. with liquid. At some point, people aren't as thirsty anymore. So we need to listen to that. It, the kidneys are working real hard. They're shutting down. So they cannot process. Their body's flooded with all types of chemicals and things. We can't force them to drink if mm-hmm. they don't want to. So that slows down. There's a lot more sleeping, longer periods of unconsciousness. Um, the skin might change. This is probably like a few hours before death. The skin uh, texture might change, might get cold, a little really? clammy. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. the nails start to change, okay. lips change color. Um, like eyeballs start to sink in a little bit. You start to lose some some uh, plumpness in the More skin. Like a sallow feeling to yes. the skin. Too. Sallow, yeah. okay. grayish. Um, it's not as plump anymore. You know, dying. Dying doesn't look like anything that we've been told dying looks like, but dying looks like, I think, what it should look like, which is that Mm. the life force energy is diminishing and the Mm. body can't do what we've known it to do for so long. And so we just must let it do the only thing that it can, which is work to die. To die, to let go. Yeah. Yeah. One of the most important questions your company going with Grace poses is the one that we acknowledge toward the start of this conversation, which is what must I do to be at peace with myself so that I may live presently and die gracefully? Are there any actionable steps, any action items you recommend we do to live more presently and die more gracefully? Yeah, get your affairs in order. Those are action steps. Mm-hmm. Start thinking about the practical things. Who do you want to make your decisions for you if you can? Um, what kind of decisions would you like them to make? Think about your services. Think about what you want done with your body. Think about your possessions, like we talked about, not only the big ticket items, but also the sentimental ones. Think about your dependents or pets. Who do you want to care for those? Um, think about your important information and your documents. Where are they? Are they under the mattress? Does somebody know that? Are they in the freezer? Or are they in yeah. the filing cabinet in the office on the left? Wait, the documents the- in the freezer? Hey, Lou, yeah. where are your important papers? <laughs> 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 mine are actually yeah mine are all over the place but they're they're in a folder they're in a freezer. folder 
People keep no them judgment, in the freezer. No, judgment, no, but for real, I have to check all types of places when I go into a home because you don't ever know. And then the thing that we all forget is that when somebody dies, that knowledge dies with them. With them. Unless they have told somebody. I have found credit cards and mortgages Uh-oh. in the freezer, like a deed to a house in the freezer, in the freezer. Yeah. People keep all wow. types of things in all types of places. Under the mattress is another popular one. So <laughs> tell somebody where your things are. Tell somebody where your things are. Um, in order to also live presently and die gracefully, like we were talking about, if there is anything that you're living in resistance to right now because of a fear of death, it's time to take a solid look at that. Because that death is going to come, hopefully not for a while if you know when you're ready, but it's going to come. And if that's the case, may as well start working on it now so you're not rushing to try to get it done when you may no no longer be able to. Right. Okay. If there are things that you need to say to people in your life, something along the lines of thank you, I'm sorry, please forgive me, I love you, please say it. Look at the quality of your relationships, the people that you love, the people that are in your life right now, the people that are no longer there. Are you comfortable with the choices that you've made? Mm. You're going to live with them. Mm -hmm. You're also going to die with them. Wow. Are you comfortable with the choices you have made? That's a question. That's, that's, you were talking about death is scary. That's a scary question because there's so much opportunity for regret, for things we never said, things we said wrong or meanly. And now that person's gone and we can't take it back. Yeah. Don't do that to future self. You know, don't do that to your future self. Just handle it now. But think about, you know, all the things that you've done. Also be comfortable with who you've become. And if you're not, here's your invitation to make a change. Mm-hmm. Here's your invitation to change something. Mm. Yeah. In summation, um, one, I never knew I was going to enjoy a conversation about dying <laughs> so thoroughly. <laughs> I've had a great time talking to you about our impending deaths. So thank you for for, thank you. for all of this wisdom. Um, but in all seriousness, you know, we think. So we've, a lot of us think, I certainly have been one of these people who think so much about legacy, about I was here. I want the world to know I was here. The more work I do, the more meditation, the more reflection, and maybe it's because of sort of my, I'm just like, it doesn't matter. It it matters, but it doesn't matter. And that has been freeing for me, right? Do I want my loved ones to, to feel my love after I'm gone and know that I cared? Absolutely. But I think it's very tempting in this society, this world of ours, to get so caught up in making a mark and making a difference and meaning something to people who we don't know from Adam, that we focus externally and we waste so much life, so many years, our best years, trying to make a mark externally for people who, even if they think of us and are impressed for a fleeting moment, won't be thinking about us significantly or for any extended amount of time. And more and more, when I think of legacy and what I'll leave behind or just what I want to do, I just want to live and enjoy it and be fully present in it. And I want it to feel good while I've got it. And when I'm gone, I hope that I haven't caused too much pain to the people who have been left behind. And I hope they know I love them. And that's really it. Because a million years from now, like, whatever. Okay. I'm curious to know for you, um, is that something that a lot of people grapple with the legacy of it all? Why am I here? What do I want to leave behind? And have you, how, how have you come to terms with legacy? Personally, I believe very strongly to what you just said. You know, sometimes I think that 
searching for some meaning of my life or some purpose or some something that I'm going to leave behind is a red herring that distracts me from the tremendous gift it is just to be able to be alive and to bring in oxygen and to release carbon dioxide, to taste the pomegranate seeds, to watch caterpillars on the vine, to look at the clouds, to be able to look into the, into the eyes of somebody I love and to feel awe at like a baby's fingernails, you know? That to me is the juice. That to me is the fun stuff. I want to be here. I want to be here because I am so briefly human. I want to enjoy it as much as possible. When I'm gone, I hope that the people that loved me uh, know that I loved life. I loved my life and that I gave it the best that I could. Now, if for other people, their accomplishments or what they have to leave to other people matters deeply to them, by all means, I hope that they go for it because we're going to reach the end of our lives and it's we're going to die our own death. You know, live your life because you're going to die your death. If it's important to you to have your name on the side of a building, by all means, please go for it. Go for it. Work your butt off to get there and be pleased with whatever it is that you create in the process because it's coming one way or yeah. another. So how can we make peace with this? this miracle that is life right wow beautifully said beautifully mm -hmm. said i am so filled with joy and peace i'm like ooh, she's good at her job but don't be too good now i'm not trying to go to the other side <laughs> yet, but I'm feeling, I'm feeling at peace after this conversation yeah if, if people if people want to connect with you if they want to learn more about your services potentially book a session or a consultation where can they go you can always find us on the internet, Going With Grace, um, or on any social media, most social media, not any, not TikTok, because I don't know how to do those things where they stand there and they point at things and <laughs> they dance. That's not for me. That's I pulled my me. back That's trying to make a TikTok video last week. I <laughs> no. just got the ability back. Serious? Oh my God. I wish I was. My boss was like, you need to make up another version of how you pulled your back because you sound ridiculous. <laughs> That's hysterical. Your boss is like, sit down, please. Sit down. Right. Uh, yeah. So you won't find me on TikTok. I'm doing only dances with my niece every once in a while. But otherwise, <laughs> anywhere on the internet, I'm pretty findable. Wait, no, hold on. No? Anyway, you got to tell us we're on the internet. So it, okay. going with Grace, at going with Grace, at yes, yes. Lua Lake. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> we need specifics. Uh, Goingwithgrace.com okay. for the website. Instagram is at going underscore with underscore grace. If not, you'll end up with a yellow lab in like Kansas or somebody that's not me for sure. Not me. That ain't um, our personally, grace. Yeah, no, that's not, that's not it. Mm -hmm. uh, you can always search Elua Arthur. You'll find me somewhere uh, that if you just want to use a regular old Googles. Um, otherwise, I am in my house in LA. I am drinking oh, delicious nice. iced hazelnut lattes. Uh, I'm working on a book right now and I'm kicking it, looking out the window. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That is, like in that's life. amazing. Also, I didn't realize you were based in LA. So that makes way more sense than the donut recommendation. You're probably pulling yes. up at LAX all the time. Listen, for <laughs> hazelnut donuts, that's why. <laughs> no, I travel. Not even catching a flight. Just go no, no, pick no. up the donuts. Just going for the traffic and the donuts. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, Elua, thank you so much for your time, your energy, your wisdom. Uh, never laugh so much talking about death. And in all seriousness, um, your perspective really—it's it, unique. It's needed. 
And I appreciate it. And I've got a lot to take away and sit with as, as I continue to think about some of the hard things. And I know our listeners will feel similarly. So I appreciate you and thank you. I hope so. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for having this conversation because it's healing. So thank you. Thank you. All right, you all, there it is. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Uh, Don't forget to check out the Going With Grace website uh, for more resources to reach out if you're interested in booking a session with a death doula. Uh, And by the way, if you're loving what you're hearing, don't be shy either. The love keeps Team Hot Happy Mess going. So go ahead and leave us a review. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the things. Five stars is awesome because... Um, so speak what's on your heart but hopefully it's a positive review and share this episode with a friend if you liked what you heard if you feel like it's applicable to someone in your life um, or just a conversation that you want to get going this could be the icebreaker that you're looking for to have that uh, meaningful maybe sometimes difficult conversation with a loved one Uh, you can follow us at hot happy mess and at zuri hall on instagram and we'll see you next wednesday with a new episode bye guys From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from Brain MD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.